Good morning. Wow, it's so good to be able to praise the name of the Lord together, isn't it? As children of the Lord, to be able to come into his presence and sing his praises together. Special welcome for you this morning if you're with us for the first time. Uh, Some of you might maybe be here just checking out the church to see what it's all about. Maybe someone's here checking out Christianity in general uh, to see what this faith thing is all about. But we do welcome you. Uh, We are glad that you are here with us, excited that we get to uh, be together this morning. So this morning, as you can see from the screen up there, we're continuing in a series called Hope Explored, a three-week series that Josh introduced last week. And the series is developed by a guy named Rico Tice, who is a pastor at All Souls Church in the UK. And um, he is introducing us through this series to some big questions of life. So if you were here last week, you would have seen this question. How can we find hope in a world of frequent disappointment? Is there really hope in this world of frequent disappointment? And then we learned about this, about the Christian hope, a joyful expectation for the future based on true events that happened in the past, which then changes everything about my present. We discovered that there is real hope in this world, and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So that was last week. But then this week, we have another big word, and the word is peace, as Josh mentioned a bit ago. Peace, and this big question that goes with it. Is there any hope of living at peace with ourselves and with one another? Any hope of living at peace with ourselves and with one another? Is that possible? Is lasting peace possible or is it just a pipe dream? Is it just something we dream about but could never realize? So to help us think about that, we're going to join Pastor Rico as he shares with us um, on this topic of peace. Go ahead. Westfield Park Road has been etched in my memory ever since I lived there in my 20s. I was at number two with some friends and we quite liked the place, but there was a problem. It was number one. We shared a front door and several internal walls, but that was about all that we had in common. With neighbours like these, there was no hope of any peace and quiet. They'd play loud music at midnight. They'd wake us up as they came back from a night out. I still remember opening the door for one of them at 3 a.m. after he'd locked himself out. He didn't even apologise. I think he thought I was the butler. It's trivial, really, but it struck a nerve. And all I wanted was a bit of peace. I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear that word, peace. Maybe it's a beach somewhere in the sun with nothing but the sound of the ocean. 
or one of those iconic news clips from history which show revelers celebrating the end of a war. Or John Lennon in his famous song, Imagine, dreaming of all the people living life in peace. Whichever of those most resonates with you, it strikes me that for most of us, one of our biggest hopes, one of our deepest longings is for peace. For one thing, all of us would love to see peace out there and enter conflict and crises around the globe. At times, my heart sinks when I turn on the news and I'm sure yours does too. And most of us hope for peace in here too. We long for a break from the anxious soundtrack of thoughts that play in our mind like a record on repeat, for a solution to the regrets and responsibilities that keep us awake at night. And we hope for peace between us in our relationships. I'm sure like mine, your circle of family and friends has been marred by relational strife. It could be a couple who've stopped really talking or listening to one another, or a parent and a child whose every interaction is at risk of spiraling into an argument, or two old friends where a simple misunderstanding like a forgotten birthday or a lack of phone calls or a shortage of sympathy has made everything go cold. The absence of peace is so painful it's all jagged edges and gaping silences and lingering regrets. But the presence of peace, well, that's truly beautiful. It's wholeness and harmony. It's completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. It's safe. That's precisely the vision behind the Bible's word for peace, shalom. It paints a picture of a peace that is deeper and more far-reaching than the ceasefires we often settle for. Shalom is not just, it's okay, I get along with my neighbor and we don't hassle each other and we leave each other to get on with our lives. That would be pretty good. But shalom is one better. It's, I take delight in my neighbor. We so enjoy each other that we take the fence down between each other's gardens. We have barbecues together. We babysit each other's kids. That kind of peace would be beautiful. But is there any real hope of a world like that? Or is lasting peace only a pipe dream? That's what we're gonna find out.
it just a pipe dream, as, as he says? Is it something that we just dream about but can never really experience? Or can we know it? Can we really experience it? Lasting peace. I think it's a really appropriate question, as he mentioned, Rico mentioned, as we look at our world, we see conflict all around. We see the absence of peace pretty much everywhere we look. And so first off, we can see conflict in the world. We look at the news and like there's conflict all over the world, but especially right now in, in Ukraine, we see conflict. And so every single day there are people dying, there are cities that are being flattened, there are lives that are being destroyed. Conflict is in the world, but it's also in our relationships. It's not just something big that happens between countries. It's in relationships, conflict between people. And so sometimes it's members of the same family. Sometimes it's neighbors in a community that can't get along. Sometimes it's people in the same church. Has EEC ever experienced conflict? That was a joke, actually, because of course, of course, like every church experiences. But I know you guys are like, whoa, that would be uncomfortable silence. Yeah, of course. So we have an argument, a disagreement, a conflict of some sort. And soon enough, we end up with families that are broken, with communities that are divided, with churches that split up because of some conflict. But then there's also this kind, this conflict that's in our hearts. And this is the conflict that really hits closest to home because it's inside of us. A conflict that can rage within our hearts as we wrestle with questions about our identity, as we think about who we are. Questions about our purpose as we think about why we have been made. Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? Questions about our own weaknesses, our own frailty. Why do I do the things I do? Oh, why do I keep doing that? And so out there in the world is conflict. In here, in our relationships, there's conflict. And then deep down in here, deep inside my heart, there is conflict as well. Conflict is all over the place. As Pastor Rico said, the absence of peace, the presence of conflict is so painful. It is so painful, and yet the presence of peace is wonderful. The presence of peace, and he talks about this word, shalom, the Hebrew word. It's not just, um, okay, let's be friends, smile, all right, see you, but inside I kind of hate you. It's not that. We're talking about a deep, far-reaching sense of peace, wholeness, completeness, harmony, that is shalom. The presence of that kind of peace is so wonderful. Now, no doubt you have experienced conflict. I mean, we all have experienced at one point or another conflict at, at various levels. And so you know what the pain of that is like. But the question is, have you experienced the beauty of shalom? Have you ever experienced the beauty, the wonder of that kind of deep, lasting peace? Let's go ahead and hear from Pastor Rico once more.
When I was a teenager, I kept a journal. I wrote it because I thought I was such a great guy that I owed it to humanity to record my life. The only problem was that week after week, it showed me that I was the opposite of great. So in my journal, I'd lament there was a lack of world peace, but never lay aside the weapons of malice and sarcasm myself. I'd say, wouldn't it be great if the starving were fed? And then I'd ask my parents for a bigger allowance and I'd eat it. My journal revealed that there was a problem in my world and that problem was me. That might have been obvious enough to the people around me, but that realization was a real turning point for me. I occasionally think about my old neighbor from Westfield Park Road. He could have done with a journal like I had. Imagine how it would have gone. Came back at 3 a.m., locked out of the flat, woke up my butler to let me in, didn't say thank you, never said sorry. Like my journal, it would have exposed the problem in his world. But this problem extends to each one of us. Have you noticed that though we want to be at peace, we humans also have this horrible capacity to spoil the peace on a global level and on a personal level. Wherever you have conflict, you'll find it was a human who started it. We all want peace, but we all want to be the ones to dictate the peace treaty. Deep down, we expect every relationship to be on our terms. If we were to open up our journal, we'd find that there was a slogan for our lives, and it could be this, my life, my rules. And this is what we find so infuriating, because if I want to be king, and you want to be king, what happens when we meet? Of course, none of us are all bad all of the time. We're capable of great good too. But in your more honest moments, you'll be aware that there's something inside you which means you're sometimes selfish or unthoughtful or even deliberately nasty. The writer Gore Vidal once said, every time a friend of mine succeeds, something inside me dies. It's so hard to keep good things good. Why do we hurt the people we love most? Because we say, my life, my rules. And that's why our hopes for peace are never totally fulfilled. But it gets worse. If you really want to understand the problem with peace, you need to see that it's not just horizontal. It's not just broken peace out there, in here, and between us. The Bible's diagnosis of the root of the problem is vertical. We say to our Creator, my life, my rules. We choose conflict with Him instead of peace with Him. Instead of saying to the one who made everything and sustains everything, this is your world, so we'll go by your rules. We live as though God should abide by our rules and fit in with our plans. That attitude is what the Bible calls sin. And sin matters more than you might think 
because it matters very greatly to God. What I do to you matters to God, and what you do to me matters to God, and how we treat the world matters to God. Sin has consequences because God is a God of justice, and so God judges sin. Now that's good news when we're the victims of sin. God is not indifferent, he cares. But that's also very sobering news when we have sinned. And so we face an eternity spent without the God who we've rejected, an existence without him and without any of the good things that he gives us to enjoy in this life, even as we reject him. That existence is the place that Jesus called hell. He described it as the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible's very straight with us. If we turn our backs on the Lord of Light, we'll find ourselves left in the dark. God will hand us over to the consequences that our conflict with him and our treatment of others deserves. But there's hope. We saw in the last session that thousands of years ago, God spoke through a prophet called Isaiah, and he promised that a ruler would come who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And 700 years after that promise was made, Jesus was born. He came to show that there is a God out there and that he cares about us enough to live with us. When he grew up, he proved that he himself was the Mighty God by doing things like calming a storm, and raising a dead girl. But that's not all. Isaiah's prophecy also called him the Prince of Peace. So if you want peace, Jesus is the person to start with. Ironically though, for a Prince of Peace, Jesus sure did make a lot of people angry. The religious and political rulers of the day had a problem with him because he didn't fit in with their rules, their agenda, their priorities. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power and so they were determined to have him killed. They conspired with the Roman government to have Jesus arrested in secret, condemned in a sham trial and executed in public. The charge? Claiming to be God. The sentence? Death by crucifixion. It was an absolutely brutal method of capital punishment that the Romans saved for the worst offenders in society. That's where we're picking up the story in Luke 23, verse 32, as Jesus is led out of the city to be hung on a cross on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said since you're under the same sentence. 
We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise? When you think about it, that's an outrageous offer. This criminal is under the sentence of death. He's likely a murderer, a thief, and a terrorist. He's been cast out of society and nailed up on a cross to slowly suffocate to death. Yet what does Jesus promise him? A place of peace. That's what the word paradise is getting at. It's harmony, wholeness, and tranquility. So how can one dying man look across at another dying man and make such a promise? How can we find peace? Well, in the verses leading up to that peace offer, there are three steps. Think of them as three steps to paradise, if you like. The criminal says, don't you fear God? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. So he doesn't say, look, I'm a victim. He doesn't say, I'm innocent. It's as if his journal has been opened and his heart has been exposed. There's a problem in his world and that problem is him. He says, I deserve to be here. I'm being punished justly, not only by the arm of the state, but by the arm of God. He acknowledges his wrongdoing. That's the first step. You don't meet many people this honest about their own flaws. I don't know what you made of all that talk of sin and judgment earlier, but the thing is, Christianity will never make sense until you get to the point where you look at your wrongdoing and say, actually, I've been living with a my life, my rules attitude, and I deserve judgment. Our culture finds this unpalatable. We live in a world that laughs at sin, just as the other criminal mocked Jesus back then. But that doesn't change the truth that our conflict with God is real, is serious, and it's our fault. And admitting this can actually be wonderfully freeing, as we'll see next. So that's step one. We acknowledge our wrongdoing. Second, the criminal recognises Jesus as the King, the mighty God come to earth. He sees in verse 41 that this man has done nothing wrong. And then in verse 42, he says, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. When this criminal looks at Jesus, he doesn't see a desperate man at the end of his life, but a king with a royal pardon to bestow. A king who can calm a storm, who can raise the dead, and who'll rule over a paradise beyond death. I wonder what you see as you look at Jesus. And in the third step, 
this dying man cries out to Jesus for rescue. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not that he just wants Jesus to think of him. He wants Jesus to act for him. Think of a married couple. If one of them says, remember darling, it's our anniversary next week, they're not expecting their partner merely to remember that fact, but to do something about it, to book the table or buy the flowers. This criminal sees that Jesus is a king with a kingdom beyond death, an eternal place of total peace. And when Jesus gets there, the man wants Jesus to act for him. He asks Jesus to welcome him, a condemned criminal, into that kingdom. This criminal offers nothing, but he asks for everything. And what does Jesus say in response? He doesn't say, sorry, I'm just a man like you, I can't help you. He doesn't say, well, I'll tell you how you can save yourself. Live a decent life, say your prayers, love your neighbour, go to church, and then you'll book your place in heaven. He doesn't say, you decided to reject me and my rule in your life, you made your bed, and now you'll lie in it. No. Jesus says, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. No conditions, no qualifications, no delays, just total acceptance, total forgiveness, total peace with God. The criminal offers nothing, but he receives everything. Yet this forgiveness isn't free. Yes, it's free for the criminal, but it costs Jesus his life. Look what happens next in verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he'd said this, he breathed his last. Three hours of total darkness. It's not an eclipse, but a supernatural sign of God's judgment against sin. But this judgment isn't falling on the people who deserve it. Instead, what's happening is that God is handing Jesus over to the consequences of other people's sin, of my sin. Jesus is paying for all the wrong in my journal. In a world of conflict and rebellion, Jesus was the only person always to have kept the peace. If Jesus had kept a journal, you wouldn't find any wrongdoing in it. But on the cross, he experienced God's judgment as if he had my sinful record. Jesus willingly paid the price so that he can offer peace. Here's a picture of how this works. A few years ago, as I was cycling in London, my front wheel jammed between the bars of a road drain. The bike stopped dead. I flew over the handlebars and I hit the surface of the road head first. A doctor I saw afterwards said that if I'd not been wearing a helmet, 
I'd probably have been killed. But I was wearing a helmet. It got smashed to pieces, but I just stood up and I was fine. Because of the bicycle helmet, I was alive. But in order to absorb that impact, the helmet has to shatter. So when I crashed, my helmet was destroyed by the impact that would have killed me. And that's a small and inadequate picture of what Jesus did on the cross. Here was God taking his own judgment, bearing his own anger, taking into himself the darkness that should be mine. The Prince of Peace experienced the darkness as he died so that the criminal next to him would not have to endure it after he died. Instead, that criminal could enter into God's place of peace for eternity. Peace with God is what Jesus offered the criminal and peace with God is what he continues to offer today. The steps to peace haven't changed. If we acknowledge our wrongdoing, accept Jesus as King and ask him to rescue us, we too can know peace. That's all we have to do, but we do have to do it. And if we take Jesus up on this offer, then everything changes. It starts in here. It means that you can face the world with joy and confidence because you're at peace with the one who owns the place. When you mess up, you don't need to try to ignore it or seek to hide it or work to excuse it. You can be honest. This is wonderfully freeing. And that changes things between us. God's Spirit gets to work in the lives of his people, making friends out of enemies, repairing broken relationships. It means we can learn to forgive others because we know how much we've been forgiven by God. It means we're able to say those two phrases that are so crucial to relational harmony. I'm sorry I was wrong, and that's okay, I forgive you. That won't always be easy, and it won't always look perfect, and it will often take time. But God's peace does give us real hope for all our relationships. And one day, there'll be peace out there. There's hope for our bitter and broken world. History is heading somewhere, and heading somewhere good. The Bible says that there'll be a day when the Prince of Peace will restore the whole creation to a state of shalom, of real peace, fully and finally and forever. Peace in here, secure before God. Peace between us as we live in his world. Peace out there one day in a restored creation. And all because of peace with God, won for us by Jesus, the Prince of Peace. His death means that as we look at the journal of our lives and see the evidence of our sin, we can say to him with confidence, I'm sorry I was wrong. And in return, we can hear with comfort, that's okay, I forgive you. That's the hope of peace that Jesus invites us to know for ourselves. 
just as he offered it to the rebel on the cross. Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Prince of Peace, Jesus, has come to bring this deep, far-reaching, lasting shalom, wholeness, completeness, harmony, peace to this world that he created. The hope of peace is what Jesus invites us to know for ourselves right now. Peace with God, as Pastor Rico just said, such that if we look at the journal of our lives, if we wrote a journal and had it all out there, and we see the evidence of our failures or our shortcomings, we can yet say to God with confidence, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And with comfort, hear those words. That's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you. When was the last time you heard those words? I'm just curious. I actually think in the English language, I think about things like this, there might not be three more consequential words that you could put together. Now you guys might find something. I think I forgive and you together can be some of the most powerful, meaningful words we can ever hear or ever say to someone else. I don't know, think about that. The last time you said that to somebody or you heard someone say that to you. I vividly remember this time and it was really meaningful to me. I was 20 years old, that was a long time ago. Um, I was, it was the summertime, I was in Atlanta, Georgia for the summer and I was working at a camp and um, at this camp, I didn't have any transportation. So if you wanted to go anywhere, like into town, into the city, you had to borrow someone else's car or just go with someone else. And so um, this one weekend, I thought, you know, I'm gonna go with some friends, we're gonna go into town. So I thought I'd borrow someone's car. Have you ever borrowed someone's car? Anyone? No, we have some yeses, okay. Have you ever borrowed someone's car and then crashed it? <laughs> no one? Okay, good. It's just me, and I highly don't recommend that. Um, don't recommend. Maybe just don't borrow someone's car. So I borrow the car. I'm with some people. Amy was actually with me at the time. Um, I go into town, and we spend the day in town, and then I needed to go fill up the gas tank with gas. And so the gas tank was here on the left-hand side. I'm, we drive on the right side in America, because it's right. <laughs> um, just... <laughs> kidding. Um, we drive on the right-hand side, and so I had to go across left-hand traffic, make a left-hand turn across traffic. And so when you're doing that, it's legal. It's just that you have to make sure no one's coming this way. Make sure it's clear, then make the turn. And so 
I, um, I got to the place in the intersection where I was getting ready to make the turn, and there was a car, uh, actually it was a big truck that had broken down coming my way, but it was in front, and it was in the middle of the road. And so I had a hard time looking around that truck to see if there were any other cars coming. So I inched out, inched out, looked, no cars, no cars, and then I thought, all right, I'm going. So I gunned it. Well, not gunned it, but I, I, I started going. I got right out in the middle of the intersection, and that's when I looked and realized there was a car coming at me, and it was coming really, really fast. And I threw on the brakes and stopped. Now, if I had more time, I would have put it in reverse. Actually, you don't do this anymore. It's all down here. Anyway, I would have put it in reverse and gotten out of the intersection, but I didn't have enough time. And so I just sat there. And as soon as I put on my brakes, I heard the sound of screeching rubber from their tires on the pavement because they threw on the brakes. And it was like this moment, it was slow motion as I just sat there hoping, hoping, hope. I didn't even have time to pray, right? It was that fast. It's just like, I'm hoping, please stop, please stop, please stop. And then boom, right into my car. And I watched it all just happen right in front of me. I borrowed someone else's car, <laughs> pulled out into that intersection in front of another car, got into a wreck, and it was totally my fault. Now, the car was still drivable. I pulled it in to the gas station, had to wait for the police to show up, did a whole police report, all of that, but I could get it back to the camp where I was. So I got back in and I started driving it back to the camp. And the entire way back, I felt awful. You know the feeling if you've ever borrowed something. or You know when something happened and it was your fault, you messed up, and, and you've got to own up to it. I was so, I just felt horrible. I felt awful on the inside the whole drive back. I get back to the camp and I park the car. I need to go find my friend, and his office is up on the hill. So I walk up. To, to his office, I opened the door. I must have just looked really bad because he, he looked at me and he's like, you look awful. And he's like, what did you do, crash my car? And it was a joke. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I did not say a word. I just continued to look horrible. And that's when his demeanor changed a little bit. Then he realized, oh, I better stop joking about that because maybe he did. And it was silent. And I just said, can you come with me? So he gets up. We walk out of the office, we start walking down to the car, and the entire way down, I am just like, well, number one, I'm so nervous. I'm stuttering. I'm trying to explain what happened, and I just keep saying sorry. I just keep saying it was my fault. I, I shouldn't have done this. This is what happened. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. And he wasn't saying anything. You know, and you're kind of wanting to get cues, like, is he, is he super mad? Is he just kind of mad? Is he going to punch me in a moment? Like, what's going to happen? He wasn't saying much of anything. So I led him down to the car. We got to the car, and he didn't stay anything still. He just started walking around the car looking at it, looking at the places where it was messed up. He opened up the hood, looked at the engine, opened up the door, got inside, still not saying anything. And me, you know, by this point, I can't say sorry anymore. I've said sorry, all that I can say. I'm really at his mercy. I'm just waiting to hear what he's going to say. He gets out of the car and 
he looks at me and he says, you know what, this is just a car. He says, it's a chunk of metal. It's okay, we can replace it. I'm just glad that you weren't hurt. And then he said, I forgive you. He said, I forgive you. And I gotta tell you, that was the most wonderful, freeing moment, experience that I think I've had in my life where you, you carry the weight of something that you've done that's wrong. You carry it around. I feel horrible. I feel awful. I am at the mercy of someone else. And then in that moment, he looks at me and he says, John, I forgive you. And all of a sudden, it's like that weight just gets lifted up off of me. The weight of what I had done. And so in place of guilt and the shame that I was feeling, all of a sudden now I've got joy and there's freedom again. In place of conflict, there's now peace. That's peace. It's like there's conflict between us. Something is not right. And then all of a sudden he says those words. Have you had that experience? You knew it. You were in the wrong. And you said, I am so sorry. And there's nothing more you could do. And the person said, I forgive you. I forgive you. Pastor Rico said a moment ago, the absence of peace is so painful. Like the presence of conflict. When you know that you've messed up, there is no peace. Wow, that is so painful. And yet the opposite, the presence of peace, the presence of shalom is so wonderful. 1,700 years ago, there was a guy, his name was Augustine, and he was a follower of Jesus. He was a leader in the church, and he said something similar. Um, he said, we were made for God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. We, as people, we were made for God, and our hearts, they are restless. They are without peace until that moment that they find their rest, their peace in God. The restless heart, the heart without peace, but in God now, through Jesus Christ, those restless, conflicted hearts find their true and their lasting peace. Peace that is offered to us today. Three things that Pastor Rico mentioned. He said, we acknowledge that we've screwed up. This is what peace with God is all about, acknowledging that we messed up. We recognize that Jesus is the king, just like the criminal on the cross who saw Jesus and recognized there was more to him. And then third, we cry out to Jesus for rescue. And when we do that, we hear those words. We hear those powerful words from Jesus. It's okay. I forgive you. 
I forgive you. And in that moment, we will experience the forever peace that our hearts are desperately searching for. So first off, I just want to ask, have you experienced that kind of peace before? Have you experienced that peace of God that comes when we, we say, God, I'm just coming before you. I ask for your mercy. I recognize that I, I, I have messed up. God is offering us that peace today. And if anyone here, any one of you is just feeling like, yeah, I've never really experienced that, then I want you to know that today, today can be the day that you do experience that peace and you begin to know what that is all about. And if that is you, I just want to encourage you to find me after the service, find Josh. If, if you came with somebody, talk to that person that you came with. This is a great time and a great opportunity to experience for the first time this peace that God offers us through Jesus Christ. And maybe you have experienced that before. You're a follower of Jesus and you have experienced that peace, that vertical peace. But maybe horizontally there is a peace problem. We've got a peace problem in relationships, potentially. We all know this. Relationships take work. They take a ton of work to stay healthy. But the foundation of that work, which Pastor Rico mentioned as well, is the ability to say, I'm sorry. I messed up. And on the other side, to be able to say, that's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you. I would just like us to take a moment to be silent before the Lord and to consider some of this. And again, if, if you're at a place where you, you're just learning about Christianity, we welcome you here. Um, come find us afterwards. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to find peace in Jesus. If you are a Christian, um, but you're thinking through what it means to have relationships with others that are at peace, I, I just want you to consider life right now. Is there anybody right now who you really need to say, I'm sorry to? You crashed their car, but you're not willing to say it. Is there anybody you need to say sorry to in order to repair relationship? And on the, the flip side, is there anybody you need to forgive? Forgiveness is tough, but we can forgive as people, Christians, who have been forgiven. Through Jesus, And so a question is, is there anybody that you think, man, there is no peace right now in that relationship. I need to forgive that person. Let's take a time to reflect on this. And I do want to encourage you, if that's you, I would say, my hope is that you would do it. My hope is that you would, if you need to say sorry, get up there and say sorry. If you need to forgive, do that. Let's take a moment to be silent before the Lord.
Lord God, we thank you for the peace that we can know with you. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. And that we can know peace in our relationship with you because of that. Lord, I pray that you would move powerfully in our hearts, that you would move powerfully in our midst, such that our relationships with others reflect the peace that we have with you. that there would be peace in our relationships and that if we need to make that step, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us the power that we need to do that. We do thank you for your love and your care for us. We thank you for life that we have. You give life and you are love. You have showered us with your mercy and your grace. We crashed the car. You said, I forgive you. And we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.